bu.edu. BU Today News Opinion Community. The Bible's Contradictions About Sex. BU Theologian. The Good Book is Not a Rule Book. February 16, 2011 by Stephen Prothero. Jennifer Nust, an ordained American Baptist pastor and an STH assistant professor, discusses her new book with CAS religion professor Stephen Prothero. It is easy to label Jennifer Nust the author of Unprotected Texts, The Bible's Surprising Contradictions About Sex and Desire, A Theological Renegade. And she does say the sorts of things in this book about premarital sex and abortion and gay marriage that make conservatives shudder. But in one respect, at least Nust, a school of theology assistant professor, is a throwback. Long ago, and in a place far away, Christians used to actually fear God. They saw a yawning gap between their limited intelligence and the mind of God. So they were exceedingly careful about presuming what God had to say about almost anything. He who would learn astronomy and other recondite arts, wrote the Protestant reformer John Calvin, he should go elsewhere than the biblical text. Today, many supposedly conservative Christians have no trouble pontificating on what Jesus would do about the deficit or what the Bible says about war and peace, or sex, and the solar system. Nust, who is an ordained American Baptist pastor, thinks that this confidence is not only preposterous, but perhaps idolatrous as well. We sat down a few days ago, as people increasingly sit down nowadays in front of our respective computers, to discuss her new book. Prothero, why another book on the Bible and sex? What does your book have to tell us that we don't already know? Nust, because the Bible continues to be invoked in today's public debates as if it should have the last word on contemporary American sexual morals. The only way the Bible can be a sexual rule book is if no one reads it. Unprotected texts seeks to offer a comprehensive, accessible discussion of the Bible in its entirety, demonstrating the contradictory nature of the biblical witness and encouraging readers to take responsibility for their interpretations of it. But everybody knows the Bible is against abortion and gay marriage and premarital sex. Is everybody really wrong? Yes. The Bible does not comment on abortion and gay marriage. Some biblical writers argue against premarital or extramarital sex, especially for women. But other biblical writers present premarital sex as a source of God's blessing. Really? Where does the Bible give a green light to premarital sex? Perhaps the most striking example is in the story of Ruth, though there are other examples as well. According to the book of Ruth, when the recently widowed Ruth and her mother-in-law Naomi were faced with a famine in Ruth's homeland Moab, they returned to Israel impoverished and with little hope of survival. Ruth took to gleaning in the fields to find food for herself and Naomi. The owner of the fields, a relative of Naomi named Boaz, saw Ruth and was pleased by her. When Naomi heard about it, she encouraged Ruth to adorn herself and approached Boaz at night while he was sleeping to see what would happen. Ruth took this advice, resting with him until morning after first uncovering his feet, in quotations, and Hebrew feet, in quotations, can be a euphemism for male genitals. The next day, Boaz goes to town to find out whether he can marry her, and luckily another man with a claim to Ruth agrees to release her. They do marry, and together they produce Obed, the grandfather of King David. None, none of this would have been possible if Ruth had not set out to seduce Boaz in a field without the benefit of marriage. You say the Bible can't be used as a sexual rule book. Can it be used as a rule book for anything? 
are Christians left to make moral choices without any guidance from biblical sources? We can certainly turn to the Bible for guidance on moral issues, but we should not expect to find simple answers to the moral questions we are asking. Sometimes biblical conclusions are patently immoral. Sometimes they are deeply inspiring. In in either case, we are left with the responsibility for determining what we will believe and affirm. Okay, but what about Jesus? Can we appeal to him on these questions? Wasn't he opposed to divorce, for example? And what does his decision not to marry tell us today? Certainly... Christians should try to understand how Jesus might respond to a concern or problem they are facing. But Jesus' words do not come to us uninterpreted. Preserved within Gospels written several decades after his death, they have been reshaped in light of the experiences of of the Gospel writers. Also, those who have transmitted these sayings to us have left their own mark, sometimes editing and changing Jesus' words. This is particularly true when it comes to Jesus' teaching on divorce. As I show in my book, Jesus' sayings on on divorce were presented in diverse, contradictory ways, though remarriage was universally forbidden. The prohibition against remarriage, however, makes sense when it comes to the Gospels. All the Gospel writers believe that Jesus would soon return to bring the kingdom of heaven, making marriage irrelevant. In my book, Religious Literacy, What Every American Needs to Know and Doesn't, I argue that American politicians often use the Bible without knowing what it really says. Is biblical illiteracy a problem in U.S. politics in your view? Yes, in political context, the Bible is repeatedly invoked as if it can support one particular view, though though upon a closer examination, it is quite clear that the passages mentioned, if any are mentioned, say little to nothing about the topic at hand. The most egregious example is the citation of the epistle to the Ephesians as a support for, in quotations, biblical marriage, which supposedly means marriage between one man and one woman for the purpose of procreation. Ephesians simply does not endorse this form of marriage. Instead, Ephesians recommends that a man love his wife and children and be kind to his slaves. In a world where slaves could not marry and where their own sexual lives were entirely determined by their masters. This teaching endorses a hierarchical hierarchical household where only certain men have access to the privileges of marriage, human property, and children. They put human in parentheses, by the way, when it came to human property. When it comes to the Bible and sex, who in your view gets it most wrong and who gets it most right? I'm not interested in judging who get who gets things wrong or right. Instead, I would like to convince all of us to take responsibility. I would instead I would like to I would like to convince us all to take responsibility for the interpretations we are promoting. I love that sentence. She said, "I'm not interested in judging who gets things right or wrong." Instead, I would like to convince all of us to take responsibility for the interpretations we are promoting. I would like us to stop pretending that the Bible has been dictating our conclusions to us so that we can evaluate the implications of what we are defending. The question for me is not whether an interpretation is valid, but whether it is valuable and to whom. Let me read that one more time. I, this is, I love this. I'm not interested in judging who gets things wrong or right. Instead, I would like to convince all of us to take responsibility for the interpretations we are promoting. I would like us to stop pretending that the Bible has been dictating our conclusions to us so that we can evaluate the implications of what we are defending. The question for me is not whether an interpretation is valid, but whether it is valuable and to whom. Why, in your view, are Americans so obsessed with about sex? Why does religion collapse so readily into morality and morality into bedroom issues? Hmm, that's a noble question. Why, in your view, are Americans so obsessed about sex? Why does religion collapse so readily into morality and morality into bedroom issues? I wish I knew. Perhaps focusing on morality, especially morality in the bedroom, 
makes it possible for us to avoid facing other more intractable problems. Perhaps speaking incessantly about sexual morals allows some to assert a position of moral superiority, thereby promoting their own brand of righteousness at the expense of someone else's. Mm. Or perhaps people are simply longing for certainty about a topic that impacts everyone, since every human person desires to be touched and loved. Every human body is vulnerable, and sexual difference is one of the fundamental ways in which we experience being human. Absolute certainty about these matters would therefore be nice if it were available, and as even the Bible can teach us, it isn't. Hmm, I love that. Absolute certainty about these matters would therefore be nice if it were available. As even the Bible can teach us, it isn't. And I'm going to read this part one more time. Perhaps focusing on morality, especially morality in the bedroom, makes it possible for us to avoid facing other more intractable problems. Perhaps speaking incessantly about sexual morals allows some to assert a position of moral superiority, thereby promoting their own brand of righteousness at the expense of someone else's. You want us to take responsibility in quotations for our interpretations, but isn't that precisely the rub in this debate? People who cite the Bible do so to call down the authority of God on their behalf. They are asking God to take responsibility for their interpretations because they believe that those interpretations come from God. What makes you so sure they are wrong? Because we are human beings, not God. By claiming that we can be certain about matters that we only partially understand. We are placing ourselves in the role of God. From a Christian perspective anyway, this is a serious sin. Certainty is not granted to us. As an American Baptist and heir to both the Radical Reformation and abolitionist American Protestantism, I would affirm the interpretive perspective adopted by anti-slavery activists in the 18th and 19th centuries and insist that loving one's neighbor is God's chief requirement. I would defend this principle vigorously and I deeply value its implications. Still, I cannot claim that the Bible made me reach this conclusion. Some biblical passages can support my point of view. Others do not. So as I... So as firmly as I believe that love your neighbor can capture God's point of view, I cannot be certain that I am right. I love Jennifer Nuss's point of view. K-N-U-S-T is how you say her. It's her last name, Jennifer Nuss. I have the same feeling she has. I think I, I, this is me speaking. I love Jennifer Nessler's point of view. I believe that the Bible does have contradictions about sex and everything when you deeply think about it. And I, I agree with her that the good book is not a rule book and that there's a, some, a moral superiority problem. Um, there is a biblical illiteracy problem. And there is a spiritual literacy problem. And she's right. Certainty doesn't exist. (laughs) For the most part, certainty does not exist. And I dare say that we truly don't know God's perspectives on the gray area subjects. And we like to have morality competitions with each other in the name of immoral warfare. And lastly, I'm glad that she understands that interpretations we are accountable for and that the all or nothing thinking when it comes to scripture 
has got to go. So I support Jennifer Ness's words on everything she said that I read to you. Now I want to talk about something pretty hot. Is premarital sex a sin? Bible scholars respond by Seedbed, August 7, 2012. In a recent thread on Facebook, Dr. Jerry Walls posted a discussion on the topic of premarital sex in the Bible. As expected, it got a lot of attention, but the comments that followed revealed a lack of understanding in the way of biblical marriage. The responses here from professors of biblical studies provide some important notes on the biblical texts and their world that served as a foundation for a biblical theology of sexuality and marriage. Some are to the point, while others provide rich contextual insight into the texts that often get attention. Dr. Jerry Walls. Recently, one of my students raised some fascinating questions that more and more people today seem to be asking, namely, is premarital sex a sin and whether the Bible is really clear on the matter? Here's how he posed the question. Student, I will qualify this to say that my girlfriend and I aren't doing anything. However, we both fairly, we both, I'm sorry. Ugh. Sometimes I read, read to uh, keep the tongue twisters at bay. Let me start again. Student, I will qualify this to say that my girlfriend and I aren't doing anything. However, we were both fairly surprised to discover that the sex in marriage only, quotations, thing is not really there. Everyone talks about it, but I have as of yet been unable to find it. It's a particular area of interest for me because if the popular Christian notion of abstinence is wrong, we have been mentally and emotionally abusing quite literally millions of people. In the Old Testament, sex before marriage leads to marriage, Exodus chapter 22, verse 16. In the New Testament, we mistranslate the word porneos as fornication in quotations, which we take to mean sex before marriage. Whereas this is clearly not the case. The Bible uses the same word talking about reasons for leaving a marriage, which sex with a woman besides your wife is clearly not premarital sex. Most sites and sources I have found say that verses prohibiting sexual morality in quotations are talking about sex before marriage. But the argument here is circular. What is sexual immorality? Sex before marriage? Why is sex before marriage immoral? Because the Bible prohibits sexual immorality. My aim is not to say that we should all just go off and have sex with whoever we please, but the supposed biblical prescription simply isn't there. And I've done a good deal of research and asked some very knowledgeable people. Dr. Ben Witherenting, the third response. As ought to be clear from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, virginity in a woman was highly valued before marriage. In that text, she is called both the betrothed and a virgin. In early Jewish law, if you had sex with a woman, you were considered married to her or you had shamed her. See, the story of Mary and Joseph, Porneia, can refer to all sorts of sexual sin, including deflowering a virgin. What that whole discussion by your student ignores is, Firstly, there was no dating or physical intimacy prior to an arranged marriage in the vast majority of cases. The notion of dating doesn't exist in Jesus and Paul's world. Second, honor and shame cultures placed a high value on sexual purity. Notice how prostitutes were stigmatized. Women were mainly, bl women were mainly blamed for sexual immorality. Finally, Jesus gave his disciples two choices in Matthew chapter 19, fidelity and heterosexual marriage or being a eunuch. This means no sex outside of marriage. That's Dr. Those are Dr. Ben's words. That's how he thinks. Dr. Ben Arnold responds, for the Old Testament side of things, it's interesting that the only text your student interlocutor mentions is the book of the covenant stipulation that a man who seduces a virgin should pay her bride, pi, per, should pay her bride price 
and make her his wife. Exodus chapter 22, verse 16. Oh my God, I got to read that again. That's, this is, that's, that's, that's horrible and terrible. For the Old Testament side of things, it's interesting that the only text your student interlocutor mentions is the Book of the Covenant stipulation that a man who seduces a virgin should pay her bride price and make her his wife. Exodus chapter 22, verse 16. What the student fails to observe is that the premise of this legal stipulation is that the man has, in fact, gotten the process reversed. He should have negotiated the bride price I hate bride prices. This is me talking. I hate bride prices. I hate it. And to make her his wife, I hate that too. Let me keep going. He should have negotiated the bride price, then married her, then had intercourse. That's all awful, by the way. The point of the law, as with many other laws in the Book of the Covenant, is that he has willfully done something wrong and must now make amends. The text the student is citing in your discussion actually supports your position and not his. Also, although perhaps not directly related to the question of premarital sex, the single most neglected datum from the Old Testament OT related to marriage is Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 to 25. I never thought in my wildest dreams that this text would become controversial in our day, but it elevates the idea of heterogeneous marriage. Between one male and one female, regardless of how we conceptualize a state-defined and sanctioned certificate of marriage, the biblical concept is clear enough. Dr. Lawson um, Stone responds, The students claim that in the Old Testament it appears that rather than sex being confined to marriage, at least in marriage, he put leads to in quotations, marriage involves a number of errors, misinterpretations and blind spots resulting from not hearing the Old Testament OT in its own setting and voice. The fact in the OT is that a marriage was seen as naturally being quote-unquote real when sexual intercourse took place because sexual intercourse is the actual physical and emotional uniting of the man and woman. This is the origin of of the tradition in the Roman Catholic Church that a wedding not followed by sexual intercourse um, not consummated, in quotations, is incomplete and may be annulled. But this proposition is not reversible, that one can have sex and consider oneself married. The union created by sexual intercourse is real and happens regardless of one's legal state or even feelings of intimacy. That is why St. Paul, he calls him St. Paul, I'm just quoting him, warns that sex, even with a prostitute, still fuses the John, in quotations, so the prostitute is one flesh and for a believer implicates the Holy Spirit in an unholy union. The Bible sees sexual union as the vital core of marriage, but this is no way implies that no concern existed for making sure such a union was lawful, sanctioned, and blessed by God. Um, okay. Um, I'm not saying okay as in I agree. I'm just making sure that I have enough time to share my thoughts. But I'm going to be fair and share this person's thoughts. All right. The importance of marriage as a social, spiritual, and public covenant or contract is pervasive in the Bible, especially OT. The world of the OT was a patriarchal society based on land and agricultural production. In such societies, indefinitely in the world of the OT, the title to the land follows the male line of descent. In such cultures, it is unthinkable that they would be indifferent to being as certain as possible the father of a child was. This is the economic basis. There are other bases, of course, for demanding a woman be a virgin when she marries, since her children have the legal right to inherit the family property only if they are of her husband's descent or are adopted or otherwise claimed by the husband. Likewise, a man who sired children outside of marriage created a confusing legal situation regarding land, title, and inheritance. In the OT, the land as the promised gift of Yahweh is the concrete center, the focus of God's revelation in Israel's faith. Given that in the OT, the land was promised to Israel by Yahweh in perpetuity, and that this promise would be negated if through improper marriage or begetting, the land ended up in the wrong hands, the OT writers clearly would not sanction sexual activity except in the confines of a public, exclusive, permanent covenant between the, the woman and the man marriage. This reality does not allow us to say that since we are not a patriarchal and agricultural society that we may dispense with the importance of a public covenant of marriage. 
Rather, it it repeats the claim that the OT does not insist on marriage before sex, and it provides the human context outside of which the OT demand for faithfulness in marriage and celibacy outside of the marriage. The key point here is not just the agricultural or economic one, but the fact that sexual activity exists in a total weave of life, relationships, economics, and community. Marriage recognizes this. Moderns, however, only think of sex individualistically as an act of pleasurable intimacy between the man and woman. They have no notion of sex as an act embedded in the social matrix, economic life, and transgenerational history of their community to which they are accountable for all their actions. The idea that extramarital sex is fine and is only imaginable in the post-sexual revolution world of not just easy contraception and abortion, but a world in which no particular significance for society as a whole attaches to sex. In modern life, we don't really have quote-unquote intercourse in the full sense of that word. We just copulate. Thus, despite being a sexually saturated society, modern or postmodern life remains starkly devoid of sexual satisfaction. The nature of marriage as a covenant in the OT uniting a man and woman in the context of family, community, and God calls for public recognition. Unlike the Unlike the privatistic piety of contemporary life, biblical faith was communal and public. A covenant in the Bible, whether with God or between human parties, always assumes a prior history among the parties. A clear set of expectations in the relationship to be consecrated and always culminates in a vow which is witnessed by the community. Given that the NT New Testament sees marriage between a man and woman as exactly analogous to the relationship between Yahweh and Israel, then Christ and the church abruptly withdrawing marriage from the realm of public covenant, making rips up the fabric of the biblical revolution. Okay. Whew. Wow. There's a lot. Um, okay. Let me see. I have time to read other things. I want to make sure that I indeed do. Um, I'll get back to that. I got to finish this one real quick. Um, Scholars debate what Bible says about sex by Kyle. Um, Pavitel advocate staff writer, May 24th, uh, 1251. PM, May 24th, 2013. New Orleans, prostitution, polygamy, premarital sex. And that's just the Old Testament. The Bible is filled with mixed messages about human sexuality, says Jennifer Wright Nust, a professor of religion at the Boston University School of Theology, and that makes it a less than use and that makes it a less than useful rule book for sex. The Bible fails to offer girls or anyone a consistent message regarding sexual morals and God's priorities. Nuss wrote in the introduction to her 2011 book, Unprotected Text, The Bible's Surprising Contradictions About Sex and Desire. On February 13th, Nuss appeared at the Greer Heard Point Counterpoint Forum at the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, debating sex in the Bible with a more conservative theologian, the same one, Dr. Ben Witherington III. List of rules in some books of the Bible are contradicted by the behavior of God's people in other books, Nuss said at the forum. The book of Deuteronomy condemns premarital sex, yet Song of Songs seems to revel in it, she said. Prostitution is sometimes objectionable, she said, but Judah in Genesis has no problem visiting a prostitute who turns out to be his daughter-in-law tricking him. The problem with using the Bible as a sexual guide is that many interpreters pick out a few verses or stories and assume that those passages stand in for the entire biblical witness, Now said. The Bible, however, is a diverse collection of books written over the course of about 1,000 years by human actors living in circumstances that change dramatically, she said. As such, the Bible cannot be expected to offer a single or a consistent message on anything, including sex, even if some of us do regard this collection as, di- as divinely inspired as I do. Sex has always been a difficult subject for churches. I think we may have gotten the same mixed messages about sex growing up, Witherington said. The message I got from my junior high youth leader when he had his little talk about the birds and the bees was this. Sex was dirty. Save it for the one you really love. This outline... This outlook doesn't align with the Bible, which shows, a re- which shows a robust belief in the goodness of human sexuality and sexual sharing in the right context, Witherington said. 
From Nelson's point of view, the Bible has been misused for centuries as readers pick and choose which passages to ignore and which to use to condemn others, she said. As a historian, I know this is a very old game, the habit of employing select passages of sacred scripture as a carving knife to slice human communities into those who are deserving and those who are not, Nuss said during the forum. Apparently, the Bible allows those who are wearing the right spiritual and doctrinal glasses to glimpse God's own judgments and therefore to discern who is to be regulated to Gehenna, not only by God. Nuss's book cites scholarship that questions whether David and his friend Jonathan the son of King Saul had a sexual relationship at which Second Samuel may hint, and the story of Sodom and Gomorrah may have had several meanings to early readers. The importance of hospitality or warning against attempts to have sex with angels and not just an anti-homosexual story modern readers take, she said. Witherington took umbrage with her interpretation. Story about God's people doing wrong should not be confused with the clear commands of the scriptures, said Witherington, a professor at Asbury Theological Seminary. The Bible, he said, is clear about sexual expectations. The Bible is replete with examples of patriarchs or prophets or priests or kings or even apostles bathing badly, Witherington said during the forum in New Orleans. The fact that the narrative is honest, that it presents people to us, warts, wrinkles, and all, is one of the great things about the Bible. But at the same time, we have such stories of misbehavior. We also have clear statements condemning prostitution and bad behavior. These are his words. Um, to create a set of sexual ethics, Witherington said, Christians must focus on the New Testament, not the Old Covenant between God and his people. The laws of the Old Testament were there to limit sin, not license it, not license it he said. For example, Witherington said, Jesus told his listeners that they were previously allowed to divorce because their hearts were hard. There was, they were also told they could take revenge as long as it was only an eye for an eye, Witherington said. But under the New Covenant, believers would be held to a higher standard. To whom more is given... More is required, Witherington said. The New Testament writers were very clear, Witherington said, about sex. The way marriage is viewed in the New Testament is, an, is as heterosexual monogamy said. That is how one flesh is possible. That is how the commandment to be fruitful and multiply can be carried out. Boundaries to sexual intimacy are clear, he said. Sexual, sexual intimacy outside of what the Bible calls love is not merely inappropriate, he said. It is immoral. You're not supposed to totally give yourself physically to someone you do not totally trust and totally love. Physical intimacy is not a goal in itself. It is a means to express deep love, deep commitment, deep relationship, and above all else, it is a means of procreation. For us, the final authority in all matters is Christ. She said, Christians worship him, the incarnate word of God, not the words of the Bible, she said. So she said, in all matters, including questions of sexual right and wrong, Christians should lean in favor of the principle of love your neighbor as yourself. Appealing to the principle of love could change the debate, she said, from the alleged content of what the Bible says to what the loving thing to do might actually be. On that article, I disagree with Dr. Ben Witherington, and I agree with Jennifer Nust. Okay, let me finish up this last article for today, and then we're going to be, then I'm going to tell you the rest of my thoughts. Um, so where did I leave off on... I okay so I left off on okay I know where I left off on so let, let me keep going so this is what I want to say about all this. I must add that I definitely I definitely feel that premarital sex is not a sin. Um, I am for responsible premarital sex. I feel that responsible premarital sex exists in both monogamous and non-monogamous ways of going about life. Um, I think you, I, I, 
I am for responsible premarital sex. I am for responsible casual sex. I am for responsible promiscuity. Um, I, I, I think that ethical promiscuity does exist. I think that ethical promiscuity is good. I think that ethical premarital sex is, is good. And I think that ethical premarital sex exists. I think that ethical casual sex is good. I think that ethical casual sex does exist. And we have to keep in context of... Basically, I don't want to repeat every... You know, I'm trying... I want to say my thoughts because I think y'all pretty much get the point. Because it tends to repeat itself. But I will definitely say... um, that sex is more than... I want to share my thoughts because you pretty much know all the biblical sexual things. Um, because I want to share more of my thoughts because if I don't, you won't get to fully understand where I'm coming from. So I think what I'm going to do is stop right there. Um, Because I don't want to be insulting. I read some of the things and I don't want to be insulting, but let me say what I feel. And it's no diss to the other writers, but I read enough of how everybody thinks. And if I were to read it anymore, it would be redundant. And I don't believe in dumbing down myself, nor trying to dumb down you as a listener. So here's what I think. I think that I am supportive of sex work. I think ethical sex work does exist. I think ethical sex work is good. I think that Responsible sex work does exist and it's good. So when I say ethical, I also mean responsible. They go hand in hand for me in my in my worldview and life view. I the reason why I came to my Premarital sex support. This is what happened to me. I've met people who believed in being sensitized and sensitive to each other and to themselves. I grew up with the traditional biblical mandate that marital sex is wrong. And for years, I'll go back and forth on my views because I'm not going to say go back and forth. For many years, I was struggling to understand my thoughts on sexual ethics, sex and sexuality. And recently, I um, got to know all of my sexual morals, right? It took me some time, but I did years of research and years of interacting with people. And I became more and more in favor of premarital sex as I got older. And today, I am totally in favor of premarital sex. When I, back then, I, I still had confusion and uncertainty because I was still in counseling and therapy. So what informed my sexual morals, I'm about to explain them all to you, but hear me out how I landed there. It was counseling, therapy, right? It was studying the scriptures. It was interacting with people who actually engaged in premarital sex ethically. It was the understanding that marriage does not protect anyone from a destructive 
sexuality that is harmful to everyone else. And that marriage has often been used as a cop-out for failure to be um, sexually healthy. And you shouldn't depend on marriage for that, by the way. And it was thinking about how rape survivors have been mistreated beyond measure and compare. And it was me naturally forming my own uh, educated um, thoughtfulness on the subject. Here are my sexual morals. I'm going to tell you them. So, Antonio, how would you be in a relationship? This is the last time I'll say that. This is the last time I'll say this. I said it before, but this is the last time I say it. So, Antonio, the question is, if you were to be in a romantic relationship, let's start there first. Sexually, how would you be? Here's my honest response. Sex before marriage is required. Kissing on the lips before marriage is required. And everything else is optional, including marriage itself child having, child rearing, pregnancy, pet owning. That's what I'm talking about. Everything else is optional, including marriage. But those two things, kissing on the lips before marriage, sex before marriage, are requirements. So, Antonio, in a casual relationship, how would you be? I would have sex before marriage numberless times and not lead the person on to thinking that we're being serious with each other, even though we're clearly not. And that would be clear. I would definitely mention that before... um, we would be sexually involved with each other. Um, That's where I stand on sexuality. I know that same one of them said sex is about loving the gray hairs and um, loving the wrinkles and sex is about pretty much everything, every aspect of married life together. Like, you know, sex is about the chores and the bills and just all marital responsibility to sum it up because I'm trying I'm working on saying more of my thoughts than what other people think so that's why I'm talking the way I am um I've I've met casual sex partners of other people and some cases they all hung out together they all hung out with one person that they were sexually involved with. I've met promiscuous people and I've met all their partners because they would all hang. They all knew each other and it was all cool. I've met two people, premarital sex havers. Again, no problems, all cool, right? I've met group sex havers. No problems, all cool. And I found this in... Most of the people that I've met at premarital sex, it was, there was, there was, um, there was respect, um, there was honor, there was cherishment, there was reverence, and there was nobility. What do those all mean when it comes to premarital sex? Good Samaritanism. There you go. They were sexual good Samaritans to self and each other. So I believe in being, I am personally a sexual good Samaritan. I practice good sexual uh, sexual good Samaritanism, right? Let me repeat that again. I am a sexually good Samaritan because I practice 
sexually good Samaritanism. And I found sexually good Samaritanism in marital sex and in premarital sex. So I am pro-marital sex and I am pro-premarital sex. I am. And I, the premarital sex partners I've met of other people, they all got along just fine. No STDs, no unwanted pregnancies. The condoms didn't break. Um, everybody was sexually healthy. No sexually transmitted infections. And um, people are open to testing and there's no deception. Um, there was no infidelity, no cheating. Um, there was no pregnancy scares. There was... No, nobody was having sex just to have sex. There was a reason. It was because they had a genuine connection, as it's called that way. Um, there was honesty. Um, there was... Lastly, there was just a beautiful way that they treat each other in terms of... They were all sensitive lovers to each other. They were all um, caring about how to behave sexually with each other that worked well for them. So as I wrap up, this is what I want to say. I... And for gender and sexual diversity. Because I've done my studies and come to the conclusion that there's a mixture of things that make up a person's sexuality. Um, nature of a person and trying to choose my words carefully nature and so many other factors that's all I'll say meaning the wiring of the brain and um, the scientists have said biological factors, environmental factors, genetic factors, cultural factors. That's what some of them have said. I'll just say that nature is the only factor um, for what um, I'm not denying that there are multiple factors in people's lives. Of course they are. But when it comes to gender and sexual diversity, I think it's just a nature thing. I think it's just the nature of a person. So I am for gender and sexual diversity. I support all sex characteristics. I support all sexual orientations. I su- And I support all gender identities. Again, I support gender and sexual diversity. I support all sex characteristics. I support all sexual orientations, and I support all gender identities. All sexual orientations, all gender identities, and all sex characteristics are all natural, normal, and healthy. All sex characteristics, all sexual orientations, all gender identities are not choices. And even if they were all choices, they are all harmless choices. I, this, I said it before, but I'm going to say it again. I despise LGBTQI plus conversion therapy. I despise conversion therapy. I don't believe that anybody can be ex-gay. You feel what you feel. You just choose not to act on what you feel. 
So when people say, I'm ex-gay, that's not true. You are who you are. You just suppress it and repress it for a myriad of reasons. Which you shouldn't do, by the way. I reject the ex-gay movement. I think it's a scam and a sham. Um, I also don't believe in trying to change a person's sexual orientation, gender identity, sex characteristics. I don't believe in trying to change those things about people. I believe that you could be a sexually good Samaritan even when it comes to sex work. Consensual kind only is what I'm referring to when it comes to sex work. Legal age, you know what I'm, you know what I mean. So The premarital sex partners that met with other people tended to be gentle souls, too. And so those are my stances on sex there. But I'll share one more. To me, sex is more about... Sex, to me, is humanitarianism. Sex, to me, is philanthropy. And sex, to me, is being charitable. Here's what I mean. Being kind to a partner. Being polite to a partner. And being good-mannered to a partner. That also means that you are complimenting the person's humanity. You are co-preserving the person's humanity. And you're... um, Showing neighborliness to the person's humanity. So that's what sex means to me. So there you have it. You know my stances on this subject, and I'm so grateful that I've been able. to share my honest thoughts on this matter.